Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. My name is Emily Feta, and this is a brand new podcast where we talk about all things cannabis and science. If you've ever walked into a dispensary and wish you had a scientist on speed dial while you're trying to choose between hundreds of products, or if you're just curious about some of the claims being made about CBD and whether the research substantiates them, this is the podcast for you. We interview a range of scientists across the fields of neuroscience, psychology, medicine, and biology who are working in the field and doing real research on cannabis. We cover topics like, how can cannabis help with my anxiety? How soon can I drive after smoking a joint? What are terpenes and how do they affect us? What is the difference between an indica and a sativa? What level of THC can our bodies actually metabolize? How can patients with epilepsy seem to respond to cannabis when nothing else works? So if you've ever wondered about these questions or so many more, stay tuned. We have a fascinating series ahead of us where we interview very curious researchers within the field, and they offer so much knowledge and wisdom about cannabis as a plant and what it can do for us as humans and as a society. Today we are featuring Dr. Cindy Orser, who is a Chief Science Officer at DigiPath Labs, a cannabis testing facility based in Nevada. Dr. Orser is responsible for the initial development of the company's cannabis testing facility, and she has over 30 years of experience innovating at universities and within the private industry. She received a doctorate in plant pathology and genetics from Berkeley. This episode is really the perfect primer for someone who is newer to cannabis. Cannabis testing facilities are just a wealth of data and information about the cannabis products being sold in dispensaries today. They are collecting so much data, and Dr. Orser has used her position as chief science officer to analyze some of these trends and draw some really interesting conclusions. In this episode, we talk about the endocannabinoid system, We talk about terpenes and how they affect us. We talk about some of the research that she and her team have done that illustrates that terpenes might be responsible for some of the physiological effects that we experience from cannabis. And that terpenes also might be that distinguishing factor that separates one strain from another. This is really interesting insight because so much of the talk in the past has been focused on cannabinoids. So this episode is called Terpenes Are King, and you'll find out why soon. We also talk about the bioavailability of cannabis. We talk about some of the products currently sold on the market and whether a 99% THC isolate is really the most effective. And we try to understand whether your body is really capable of metabolizing some of these products with really high potency. We also talk about the biggest red flags and the contaminants found in cannabis, and she gives us a couple recommendations about what to consume if you're looking for the cleanest products on the market. So don't miss this episode. It's just so rich in insight and really fascinating opinions, and I'm so excited to share it. Cindy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Emily. Um, so tell us more about your background. How did you end up becoming the Chief Science Officer at DigiPath? Yes, so five years ago, I was running my own 
small diagnostic company in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, We were developing rapid diagnostics for Homeland Security for biological toxins. Mm -hmm. And I got a call from a headhunter who asked me if I would be interested in developing and designing uh, a cannabis testing facility in Las Vegas, Nevada for a public company. Mm -hmm. And that was five years ago, and I'm still involved with them, and it's been incredibly interesting. So had you had experience working with cannabis before? I had, yes. I mean, I had an idea for a roadside sobriety because I had a diagnostic company and Mm -hmm. I had gone around to the local VCs in Boulder trying to raise money for my concept Mm -hmm. and absolutely none of them would touch it. And this was just five years ago. So it was a roadside sobriety test for cannabis? For THC. Oh, nice. Yes. And And within the plan or within to test within a human? Human. Okay. Human. Because um, this is when Colorado was just getting rolling and they had announced that the legal cutoff would be 50 nanograms per deciliter of blood. And I felt like that was horribly unfair knowing that Mm -hmm. cannabinoids store in your fat and you could be totally stone sober and still test positive. Right, so right. so I had a concept based on my protein science background of how we might do this. But, and as I say, I mean, it's very striking that just five years ago, VCs yeah. wouldn't touch it. They told me that they felt it was the same as pornography and oh, gambling. Wow. <laughs> and Basically, come back to us, you know, when you've got it all figured out and maybe we'll talk to you. Mm -hmm. So I was, you know, a bit put off by all of it. So it was sort of good timing. And uh, I hadn't really thought about getting into the cannabis testing space. Mm -hmm. uh, But it was actually a good entry for me because Mm -hmm. I knew how to do all of that. And uh, it it has opened up a lot of opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so fascinating how things can change so yes. quickly. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, public think, perception, if, yeah. Do you think if you pitch that idea now, you would have success with it? Um, I think I would. Mm-hmm. However, I think the marketplace, while, while it's more embracing mm-hmm. of the industry, I think it's also more critical, and I think there, there would be the requirement for having proof of principle which which I've never done because I've been, you know, when we started this lab, I mean, there were no methods. I had to beg Agilent to be yeah. our instrument provider. I mean, no one wanted, it was, it's really kind of crazy. Uh-huh. Um, so there was just a lot of effort into developing the standard operating procedures, how we were going to extract cannabinoids from flour and extracts and mm. and even to this day it's an ongoing 
weekly R&D experiment because every week we get a new type of edible and we have to do some method development. Yeah, yeah. Well, that segues really into the next segues really well into the next question. So, let's backtrack a little bit and talk more about the the lab that you currently work at and what the testing process does look like for cannabis. So, I I'm curious if I were a tiny like let's put it in a fun perspective. If I were a tiny little sample of cannabis flower, um, arriving at a testing facility, or if I were an edible arriving yes. at a testing facility, what would my day look like? What, what what would be the tests and the process that I would have to go through? Yeah, so it's rather remarkable. I don't think there's any other commodity mm-hmm. in the world that gets the level of attention and uh, dissection that cannabis does. Mm-hmm. And I think that has occurred because the states really wanted to present themselves as going over and beyond to ensure uh, the safety and quality of the products. But but basically, I can speak from what happens in Nevada. Colorado's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Um, Like in Nevada, the labs actually go out and do the sampling. So Mm -hmm. we actually go to the grower or the producer. Mm -hmm. We take the random sample in Colorado. The grower or producer just drops it off. so once it arrives at the lab, there's a visual interrogation under a microscope. So say you're a flower, we're looking for any evidence of bugs or mm-hmm. human hairs, mm-hmm. which we rarely, I think, in five years, we've seen uh, f- remnants of an insect one time. Okay. But we do uh, interrogation, we take a photograph. Uh, of course, chain of custody is incredibly important. So the the sample after it's photographed is barcoded. Mm-hmm. Um, so then at that point, it's now de-identified. So none of the analysts in the lab have any idea who the grower or producer is. Mm-hmm. It just has a number. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we have the metric system, which is the state keeps track of every gram of material that we pick up. Mm-hmm. Once um, it's logged in, then the sample is homogenized and we use cryo which mm-hmm. just means flash freeze and homogenization because mm-hmm. the more uniform the particle size, the mm-hmm. lesser the, the sample size that's required to have a surety of the mm-hmm. quantitative values. So what does that mean you homogenize the sample? So there's, you can homogenize, so flash freeze, so the most simplistic way is to put it in a mortar and pestle. Okay. So you add liquid nitrogen, mm-hmm. super cold, it freezes immediately, and then you just homogenize it. Okay, so mix it all together. Yes, so, so make it uniform. You make it uniform mm-hmm. because if you've ever seen a you know a bud of marijuana, it right. has a lot of three-dimensionality <laughs> which you have to completely destroy okay. and and of course the the trichomes are only on the outer ends mm-hmm. of the flower so you want to mix that all up as well as possible and we try to get it to 0.5 millimeter particle size so okay. that's pretty fine yeah. um, we also have a cryo grinder which is a physical machine that mm-hmm. will grind it that's much more useful for 
the myriad of edibles, you know, mm. from, from a brownie to a lollipop. I, I mean, the things people come up with now is just really impressive. Mm. Um, then those homogenized samples move into the uh, analytical aliquoting lab. So every assay, and in Nevada, we analyze for 76 different analytes. Uh-huh. Um, so we have 11 cannabinoids and uh, 22 terpenes. So mm-hmm. those together make up the potency. So that's mm-hmm. the active ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily for me, uh, Nevada adopted the requirement of terpene analysis. Mm-hmm. And it's only one of three states in the U.S. that oh, really? require that. Okay. And now we know that the terpenes are the what provide the entourage effect Mm -hmm. um, because cannabinoids by themselves have no odor. Mm -hmm. So when you first uh, smell uh, cannabis, uh, your sensory perception of cannabis uh, comes from the terpenes. Mm -hmm. So you have receptors in your nose that can distinguish zamircine, limonene, beta caryophylline. And that's incredibly powerful because we didn't realize that those same receptors that are in your nose that perceive the odor mm-hmm. are throughout your body. So what that means from a physiological standpoint is that those terpenes actually are affecting you physiologically. Mm-hmm. And we know that most terpenes are sedative. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so that means they interact with another class of neurotransmitters in your body. So Mm -hmm. the cannabinoids basically interact with your endocannabinoid system, which are in the endocannabinoid system is this highly networked cascade of receptors that um, moderate dopamine, Mm -hmm. basically. So Mm -hmm. that's a feel-good chemical. Mm -hmm. And now we know that underneath that, we have these terpenes that are regulating another neuroexcitatory molecule, which is GABA and glutamate. So Mm -hmm. terpenes should definitely be included in potency of cannabis, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly because now... uh, the, the term indica and sativa and hybrid, it has no scientific meaning anymore because mm-hmm. we've had all of these um, uh, novice plant breeders through the generations as these plants have migrated westward into the United States that even a strain name has no definition anymore. So one of the things I've been most interested in why I've stuck with the testing lab is because I get all of this data and all of this data is proved uh, to be very uh, useful. But now let's get back to what happens to you as you come through the lab. So, So all of these assays require a very precise aliquoted subsample from that homogenized sample. So all of this aliquoting occurs. We also do moisture analysis in that. Uh, if it's a P50 
piece of cured flour. We do moisture analysis. If it's an edible, we do water activity. And the reason that's important is uh, free water is what, is what dictates the likelihood of microbial growth oh, okay. after the point of it reaching the dispensary. Right. Uh, so we do that. And then these samples move into the analytical lab where they're extracted, whether, again, it's for the cannabinoid analysis terpene analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we have this entire suite of quality and safety testing. So pesticide residue, um, heavy metals. Uh, we do six heavy metals in our lab, even though we're only required to do four. Um, we do mycotoxin analysis and a suite of microbial bioburden quantitation. So we do yes, no per one gram sample for pathogenic uh, stech E. coli. So that's shigatoxin E. coli for pathogenic uh, salmonella for four species of aspergillus, which are known to give rise to mycotoxins. And then we also enumerate for total yeast and mold, for total enterobacteriaceae, uh -huh. for total bile tolerant, and total aerobic count. So okay. this is an entirely hands-on, you know, you need technical people in the lab. Uh, and we also operate under a very rigorous quality management system, which mm -hmm. is governed by international standards, which mm -hmm. is called ISO 17025. Mm -hmm. um, and... So we have a full-time quality director who's constantly going through the lab, checking that everyone is following the proper procedure. Mm -hmm. We have a three-tier checkoff on mm -hmm. data before the data ever gets populated on the certificate of analysis. So it's just an incredible amount of work. And in Nevada, we sample every five pounds of of cured flour. Oh, wow. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah. It's, a, it's an extensive process. Very yeah. extensive. And I, I do want to circle back to some of those okay. specific tests that you mentioned and, um, yeah, talk about some of the red flags in cannabis testing. But first I want to talk, I want to um, go back to what you mentioned about terpenes. Okay. Because I think for so long, the, the emphasis in cannabis has been on THC and CBD. Yes. And these two primary cannabinoids. And and, and for a long time, that's all pe breeders focused on. And that's what these yes. testing labs really focused on too. Yes. But it sounds like what you're saying, terpenes are just as important from a physiological perspective. And they might affect us. Um, they might actually be responsible for some of these medicinal effects, um, potentially for some of these um, psychosomatic effects. So let's talk more about um, kind of how, how you've learned that through your research and what was really that discovery point? Um, well, I, I think what uh, clued me in is when I became very frustrated with the lack of transparency for the and cannabis user when it came to their experience at the dispensary. Mm -hmm. Because as you pointed out, and still to this day, the value of cannabis is based on the percent THC. Mm -hmm. Right. To, you go to this day, you yes. buy a little container of cannabis. Yes. And the only thing that it says is, you know, 20% THC, and right. 0% CBD. Right. Right. So the, the whole 
pricing is based on that. And and so I kind of started this campaign Mm -hmm. personally about destroying this myth about the value of cannabis is the percent of THC. So we did this, our first large data analytics study on 5,000 individual flower samples. And so we had 11 cannabinoid values and we had 22 terpene values, so 33 data points. And what we noticed immediately was if we did the analysis just based on cannabinoid content, 98.3% of all those strains, 404 different strain names, they were identical. They were all high THC, which is largely indica because all of these amateur plant breeders have selected for one thing, which is high THC. And so I just threw out the cannabinoid data and then we just looked at the terpene data and we saw three clusters based on terpenes. Okay. And so it was like, well, that's pretty strong evidence that the distinguishing trait across these 404 strains mm-hmm. are the terpenes. Mm-hmm. And since then, and that was a few years ago, now we continue to do that and we've refined our methods and how we normalize the data. And now we're seeing a little bit of interrogation. We may see five clusters, but there's overlap with those original three. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, based on what we know today, and I have this slide of an iceberg, and I always say, you know, we are at the tip of the iceberg because we know the cannabis plant produces hundreds of potentially biologically active compounds, mm-hmm. but yet we're just analyzing for what we know right. and we're we're um you know hamstringing ourselves if mm-hmm. if you're a scientist because you want to know more mm-hmm. you want to know what are these subtle differences and so right now it's terpenes but i fully believe and we're just getting into analyzing flavonoids which okay. is another large uh group of chemicals that mm-hmm. plants make and um so, yeah, I think right now terpenes are king. Really? Yeah. Even more so than um, cannabinoids outside of CBD and THC, like CBG, CBA. Um. Well, so that's what everybody is saying. You know, the new thing will be CBC and CBG. Um, uh, but the subtlety of cannabis comes from the terpenes, and it's because of this sensory perception And what I mentioned earlier is that for a very long time, you know, if you cut a lemon, you smell a lemon, you think that's the end of it. You're just smelling the lemon, but it's not. That has an impact on your body. Um, And like limonene, limonene Uh is uh, an antimicrobial. It's a, and you wonder why so many cleaning products have lemon in it. Well, there's a reason. It's because uh, it's it's a very effective antimicrobial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can go back and ask, well, why are, why is cannabis making 
all of these terpenes. And well, it's because the cannabis plant can't get up and walk away. It's stuck where it is. And so these terpenes are called VOCs, so volatile organic compounds. Mm -hmm. So it's a message. The plant is sending a message either to attract uh, beneficial uh, organisms for mm -hmm. pollination or whatever, or to repel. And in the case of cannabis, it's more about repelling mm -hmm. because so many of them have these antifungal, antimicrobial, anti-insecticide. Yeah, and, and let me ask a question on that. Do these micro, uh, antimicrobial or antifungal properties affect us physiologically, or are these more properties that the plant have that protect it from... You know, well, so bacteria. so both because so limonene is actually sort of a stimulating mm -hmm. terpene for us, mm -hmm. whereas uh, linalool, uh, uh, humulene. So humulene is what is the terpene from hops, but mm -hmm. it's also prevalent in cannabis. I mean, those are very relaxing. They're mm -hmm. sedative because in general, most terpenes are sedative. Mm -hmm. They're are relaxing. Right. And some terpenes actually interact with the same receptors that THC and CBD do. Mm -hmm. So the CB1, like beta caryophylline. I always tell people, you know, if you have a friend visiting and they eat too much of an edible and they're uncomfortable, you can just crack black pepper under their nose, that's mm -hmm. beta caryophylline because it's a very good competitor mm -hmm. with THC at the same receptor. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, you know. It, right. So it sounds like you're discussing the entourage effect. It which I is. Think for so long, we um, just thought it was THC and CBD collaborating yes. together. Yes. It sounds like you're expanding on this idea when you say the entourage effect that it's yes. not just the cannabinoids, it's the, the terpenes and everything all of these compounds in the plant, some that we might not even know about yet, collaborating and working together and helping it yes, enter um, exactly. the bloodstream in that way. So let's switch gears here because I want to talk about some of the contaminants that might come up when you're testing products. And I've worked with some manufacturers, a lot of manufacturers, who use butane as a solvent when processing cannabis flour to transform it into oil. So I'm wondering if this is a contaminant issue that comes up in labs at all. Are you finding butane residuals in products? Um, so we also test for uh, residual solvents. Mm -hmm. And actually, Nevada has the most rigorous levels. So in Nevada, it has to be under 500 part per million. Okay. Colorado, it's 5,000 part right, per right. million. Mm -hmm. So... Of all of the nasty things that could be in your vape cartridge, butane, residual butane is the least thing to worry about. Really? So what <laughs> else do we need to worry about? Um, so uh, heavy metals. Okay. Heavy metals, um, the whatever chemicals have been used to dilute that mm -hmm. extract oil. Mm -hmm. um, Unfortunately, today, the producers aren't required to let us know even what they're using to dilute with. Okay. So there's just a lot of unknowns, not, not to, um, and, and there are all kinds of plasticizers in these empty vape cartridges. I mean, there are okay. very, some, yeah. and in California now, um, the, 
testing labs actually get the finished product. So they're getting the oil, not only in the vape cartridge, but in the pen. And they get that whole unit and then they have to extract the oil back out to Mm -hmm. test it. And they are now seeing levels of um, heavy metals that are leaching Mm -hmm. from the heating element in the vape pen. Mm -hmm. Again, most of these are made in China. They use the absolute cheapest metals, which is antimony and tin. And, but we also have people, I don't, I don't understand why the public should have access to 99% pure THC. Uh, There's like, there's like no reason. Mm -hmm. It's not an enjoyable experience. Mm -hmm. It's, I always tell people it's like sitting down to dinner and having a tumbler full of Everclear right. with your meal. It's mm-hmm. like, it's not fun. It doesn't help, mm-hmm. you know? And, and now we're seeing uh, producers, because a lot of the extraction protocols strip out the terpenes and they yes. keep hearing me talk about the terpenes, mm-hmm. now they're dumping terpenes back in at ridiculous yeah, levels. What happens? what happens when that happens? Well, causes- we don't even know. We, right. we, we are witnessing this mass uh, experiment mm-hmm. of which we have no controls. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what will happen in 10 or 20 years if mm-hmm. we're going to see uh, the manifestation of new lung disease. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. people are drawing this in. They're... Mm-hmm impacting Mm -hmm. these molecules deep into their lung tissue. And Mm -hmm. we just really don't know. And because we don't even know all the chemicals that are in there. Mm -hmm. Right, right. I'm glad you brought this up because I I think this is a, I think this is a huge topic for the industry. It is. So much. And of course, with um, prohibition, the dangers of cannabis were just so, were very, appeared very dramatic and extreme and and they most of those weren't true at all when you just look at a plant occurring in its natural environment but now that we're seeing these heavily heavily processed um cannabis products on the market yes with like thc isolates and um things that really don't resemble the the plant in its naturally occurring form at all we could be introducing dangers to patients and consumers that we don't fully understand yet Yes. Um, so there's the health aspect. And then the other side, though, is that people are just, um, you know, wasting their money mm-hmm. because we've done some efficiency vape studies for a few customers to like, what is the efficiency mm-hmm. of of this vaping device mm-hmm. to liberate the Delta-9 into my lungs. Mm-hmm. You know, people want to know that. And it's right. very, very inefficient. Mm-hmm. So you're just kind of burning your money up. Right, right. And I think a lot of it is used from a commercial perspective. You know, if you want to win the cannabis cup, having yeah. the highest THC isolate is kind of, you know, this impressive thing in a commercial perspective. But does that really give the, the user the best experience? No, it. I can <laughs> tell you it doesn't. Yeah, so, so while we're on that topic, I'm curious if you had a friend who was new to cannabis but wanted to try it, um, whether for medicinal reasons or just, you know, to incorporate into their lifestyle, what products would you recommend? Not, not necessarily a brand or something, but what, what would it be flour? Would it be... 
um, a tincture? What what products do you feel are made in the safest way? Yeah. So, you know, I think if you are totally naive to cannabis, probably the best introduction would be to uh, vape flour. Mm-hmm. Instead of oil. Yes. Mm-hmm. Vape flour. Just couple hits. Yeah. Sit around, see how you feel. Mm-hmm. Now, if you are uh, a a medical patient and you're seeking relief from pain or some uh, medical condition, I recommend edibles. Okay. Because actually, um, and of course, you know, there's you have to be patient because mm-hmm. it's not immediate, right? right? It has to go through your gastrointestinal tract and get mm-hmm. transformed, but you get a longer duration of um, effect Mm -hmm. and it's much more potent. It's about tenfold more potent if it gets gets transformed in your liver versus you just inhaling it and it going immediately into your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then do you see any red flags coming up? Obviously all edibles are not created equal. So do you see any red flags come up in the testing lab with edibles and, and what might those be? Or any products in general. Yeah. Um, well, I, so I mean, I just don't. I just don't understand why somebody thinks they have to eat a five hundred calorie cookie, you know, to get ten milligrams mm-hmm. of THC. You know, um, you can buy the oil, and uh-huh. in fact, this is what I do because I use cannabis to be able to go to sleep at night. Mm -hmm. And so you can just buy the oil and you can just put a tiny drop on a cracker and you can eat it. Yeah. And, you know, it's 10 calories and (laughs) you're going to get the same effect and you're not going to have this big chunk of sugar. (laughs) Well, it's not like you don't have a sweet tooth, but I can definitely understand going for the cookie over the cracker. (laughs) Plus, I mean, it's, there's they're ridiculously in in Vegas. A cookie's twenty five bucks. Right, right. <laughs> and you're just paying for the flour and the sugar and the process. You're not really yes. paying for the cannabis. That's right, mm-hmm. right. So yeah. you know, everyone's different, yeah. obviously, and uh, there's definitely a product out there for everyone. Mm-hmm. But there's a lack of information. There's a lack of education, and there's still a lack of transparency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of um, what you see at the lab, in terms of some of the other red flags that might come up that would prevent cannabis from moving on to the next phase and being sold at a dispensary, what are the most common things that come up? That means that a, a cannabis, you know, that, that, that it fails sold, for. That it fails the testing. Yes. So in, um, in, in Nevada, the Achilles heel is micro, micro failures. Okay. And the two categories are either Enterobacteriaceae, which mm-hmm. is being introduced by your employees okay. because there's no naturally occurring Enterobacteriaceae okay. on cannabis. So that would be kind of towards the, the curing and the trimming process. Like right, the, all the when, handling. Yeah, when they have a lot of hands-on. Or they, I mean, and we do a lot of environmental testing for grows. We'll come in, we'll do a thorough swabbing, we'll show them where their source is. And it often, the source will be 
in their water supply or in where they mix the nutrients in these, you know, thousand gallon vats. Uh And then it goes dripping through all of their tubing. Okay. And if it gets contaminated there, it gets introduced into this nutrient rich vat. Yeah. I mean, these bacteria just take off and then you're just systematically contaminating your entire Mm -hmm. grow. So that's an interesting point, and, and that was actually my next question. So you mm-hmm. you do have the ability to point to the stage in the supply chain yes. where that contaminant was introduced. Yes, we do a lot of that. Another big source of contamination uh, for micro microorganisms comes from this coconut husk planting mm-hmm. material. This yeah, the cocoa. Cool, yeah, I know what quite, you mean. <laughs> it's a soil. It's like a cocoa growing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, all of these, these coconut husks come in container ships from India or South America. And mm-hmm. so they're in these, they're just cooking inside these metal crates. Mm-hmm. And by the time they come here and they get bagged up and they get delivered and mm-hmm. mixed in for their soil, I mean, they're just full of fungi and yeast. And so mm-hmm. that particular growing material has been a great source of contamination as well. Okay. And then once the grow is set up, of course, they have these huge fans that are mixing the air mm-hmm. and microorganisms form aerosols from these fans and the and the microorganisms move mm-hmm. around and then you open that grow door and all of those organisms come out into the hallway and then somebody opens another door and boom, they go in there. Right, right. So if you get your your facility contaminated it's really a challenge to get mm-hmm. it cleaned up mm-hmm. and actually what we're seeing in Nevada now in these large grows is they're actually making the investment into um electron beam or uh um gamma irradiation mm-hmm. devices so they're actually gamma irradiating the material before we ever pick it up and we know that because we'll get product that's clean uh-huh. like non-detect it's so clean mm-hmm. because it's been irradiated and is that kosher is uh, that- that's what's very common in the food industry okay. and pharmaceutical industry oh, okay. so mm-hmm. that's you know that's better mm-hmm. but there can still be um remnants of those dead bacteria there Mm. of fungi that could still elicit uh, an immune response if you're Mm. susceptible okay basically if you're immune compromised you just should not be smoking marijuana okay so could you would you recommend a different way of consuming it or yes edibles Edibles. okay (laughs) or 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 tinctures yeah yeah you know and you can make your own too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah so you're in such a good position to be collecting data from mm-hmm. growers all over the state of Nevada and as Digipath expands, potentially yes. all over the world. Yes. So I know a big part of your company's mission is this data acquisition and analysis. So um, what what kind of data are, are you extrapolating from cannabis? What kind of questions are you asking? And I, I know we talked about um, the terpenes before, but right. I just wonder if you can highlight a couple really exciting um, themes here. Right, right. So... So we've shown for through chemo profiling, through, so through analytical chemistry, that we can tell you where your 
strain falls in which terpene cluster. But, uh, you know, I was thinking that, well, that requires a mature cured flower. And so now through our collaboration with medicinal genomics, we've sequenced um, about a hundred different strains throughout these clusters. And now we have the ability through a genomic SNP analysis that we can do the same thing at the cotyledon stage. So at, at a seedling stage now, we can tell you the likely terpene profile of your material. Mm-hmm. So that requires a fairly sophisticated mm-hmm. client and mm-hmm. not everybody's there. But certainly the big LP growers in Canada are very savvy and they're very interested in that. And Mm -hmm. then I was, as I was telling you earlier, we also now have the ability um, at a genetic level to distinguish fiber type hemp from drug type CBD Mm -hmm. and drug type THC. Mm -hmm. So at the moment, I think that is the most exciting thing, obviously, What I'm interested in is to do the same thing, to identify strains that have natural resistance to, say, powdery mildew or botrytis. Mm -hmm. And and so that's sort of the direction we're going is now looking at resistance to groups of plant pathogens. Uh Uh-huh. And distinguishing between the fiber type hemp and then, I guess, medicinal? Well, it's so it's, yeah, so the... So we really are in need, and, and you know, again, back to this bringing more transparency to the cannabis end user, um, which started me on this process, is to um, come up with a new nomenclature. So we're all speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. So there's no, you know, is this an orange or is it an apple? You no, know? There's no standard, right. All we have is strain naming, which today is no more than branding. Yeah. It's branding, Mm -hmm. which is fine. That's fine. But if, if we, if we approach this as the medicine that it is, and it's all medicinal because it all affects us rather Mm -hmm. dramatically across a large spectrum that we should have uniform ways of talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so that at some point in the future that we can actually define what a dose is mm-hmm. based on a chemical profile that we know is going to impact the human body. Mm-hmm. So uh, the original nomenclature that was defined after the indica sativa, like I say, that has fallen away is was based on the ratio of THC to CBD. Mm-hmm. So drug type one is high THC, drug type two is equivalent THC and CBD, mm-hmm. and drug type three was high CBD. And now we know just from our work and other people's work that type one can be further dissected mm-hmm. based on terpene analysis. Mm-hmm. And as I alluded to, we only know what we know. Mm-hmm. Um, like there's this um, group in Israel at the Technion Institute, Professor Meiri. They're light years ahead of us. So they they do extended metabolomics. They identify 104 
cannabinoids mm-hmm. in their strains, and they've used those to categorize the 36 strains that are grown under the, the government in Israel for their medical marijuana program. These strains are used to make medicine to treat children. And they took the same genetics, same strain. They grew it in four different greenhouses. And then they compared the metabolomics of those cannabinoids. And they were different. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a great... And, and not only were the cannabinoid profiles different, the resulting medicine that was made from those had different efficacy in the children they were being used to treat with for epilepsy. So minor cannabinoids impact the effectiveness of CBD. Okay. And that is the clearest evidence we have so far is mm-hmm. from the Israelis. And that's just the cannabinoids, mm-hmm. right? They're, that wasn't even including the terpenes. Mm-hmm. So it's it goes back to a age-old principle in genetics of, of nurture versus nature, right? right? So right. you have your, the genetics, but how you grow up and what yeah, you're exposed yeah. to mm-hmm. uh, can greatly influence the the outcome, the mm-hmm. phenotype. Yeah, so let's finish with a fun question. Okay. And I know we've talked about this, but um, throughout the throughout this um, interview, but if you could answer one question about cannabis tomorrow, if you could just have the answer through your scientific research and data, what would that question be? What are you most curious about? Um, right now, what I'm most curious about is the bioavailability mm-hmm. and we don't have an easy way to give a value on bioavailability, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, I think that would be the one thing that would turn this industry around mm-hmm. is if on that label, and, mm-hmm. you know, it says 99% THC, uh-huh. I mean, how much of that is bioavailable? Right. Like how much does your body process yes. of that? Yes. Oh, that's a great Right. Yeah. And, and so... What I would really like to have are some bioassays yes, yes. to be able to simply just evaluate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that kind of requires a would, would require kind of collaboration between a testing lab potentially and also research physiological research. Well, yeah, I mean it's it's the motivation for the cannabis research institute concept. Yes, yes, because yes. we we need people who can conduct these kinds of studies totally independent mm-hmm. and not having this requirement to do the day job, yes, right? Which is right. cranking out a hundred samples because yeah. it's very difficult to get instrument time mm-hmm. to do these kind of R and D. Yeah. This kind of R and D work. Yeah. And I would say currently, I mean, the research that's being done on um, the cannabis plants in these testing labs is really in a vacuum in comparison to any research that's being done, you know, Susis Lee and her research with the right. veterans. Right, and right, like, I right. mean, it's just so, so separate. And that's such a massive issue in this yes. industry is that we're yes. we're gathering data on, on cannabis and then we're also conducting very, very restricted and limited research um, on patients, right. but it's not even using the same type of cannabis. That's and right. And it isn't really a collaboration. So, that's yeah, right. and I'm so interested. Right. In, I think that bioavailability concept is is really important and we yes. really need to have answers to yes. that and, and yes. I think we might be 
seeing some some isolates yes <laughs> shut yeah. down after we realize that like you know a 99 yeah <laughs> pure THCA right. extract is not actually being yes. metabolized yeah so and just to one final comment on that i mean and it gets back to what is a dose because mm. What's a dose? So the only, yeah. actually, the only data we have on a dose comes from GW, GW Pharmaceutical, which has the only FDA-approved cannabis-based drug in the mm -hmm. U.S., which is Epidiolex, mm -hmm, which right. is... Which is ninety nine percent CBD. Yeah, and doesn't have terpenes in it. No, ninety nine percent CBD, right, right. and and their dosing I think is from six hundred to two thousand milligrams a day. Uh huh. Yeah. And so they must have derived that through all of the clinical trials they did. Uh huh. Um, and you know that that seems like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much, yes. Cindy. This has been awesome. I feel like we've covered so much ground yes. in the testing lab, but also, you know, what happens to consumers and patients. So thank yeah. you so much for uh, sharing your time and, uh, and all of your knowledge with us. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.